number 10 for Brendan Taylor. Adams got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, Tegan. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates here in Coley. Cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Great to be back with you again. I'm Dean Duplessis and uh, as per normal, we've got some fantastic interviews for you to listen to just in case you're subscribing for the first time. You can uh, have a little listen. You can subscribe to the Dean at Stumps podcast via your preferred podcast feed or app. In other words, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Google as well. Um, subscribe and have a listen. There are some very, very good interviews. And another one to be added to the list is arguably Zimbabwe's most successful captain in Test Match Cricket and in One Day International Cricket. Also, at one point, was convener of selectors, is involved with a lot of things away from cricket, but we've also heard his voice in the commentary box alongside a whole bunch of wind chimes. Uh, former Zimbabwe cricket captain Alistair Campbell. Al, thanks for making time in a very busy schedule to have a bit of a chat. No problem, Dino. I'm glad I've been able to uh, get some time. I know we've tried to get together um, numerous times in the past, but yeah. uh, I'm glad today we can sit down and have a, have a chat. So what is it now all about blueberry farming and all sorts of crazy things that you're involved in away from cricket? Yes, I mean, there's, uh, with this, uh, this COVID thing, I mean, we're really, I'd really started uh, the plans and uh, had put in a, a few hectares of, uh, of blueberries uh, prior, to, uh, prior to this pandemic, um, and it's just uh, sort of galvanized and uh, come to uh, fruition more and more insofar as uh, the last uh, four or five months are concerned. So, yeah, we've got a, a decent uh, project going now, and uh, it is a superfood. It's in demand the world over, so uh, hopefully it's, uh, it's something that uh, can keep me busy in years to come. So, I mean, in, in, in terms of cricket, when there is, there'll never be a normal, it'll always be a different or a new type of normal, I guess, when COVID finally relaxes its ease around the world and things can, can get back to some form of, of normal normality. What, you know, is, is, is cricket something that you'd be wanting to look at in terms of commentary, maybe even doing a bit of coaching and, or anything like that, or are you, are you kind of done with cricket for the moment? No, no, not at all. I mean, we've been uh, done with cricket insofar as commentary is concerned. I mean, that's uh, that's just a given where the, the world of cricket is at the moment. But I'm sure it'll open up and uh, um, I'll be back uh, doing a few bits and pieces, not as much as I used to do because I will be uh, busy with uh, doing a few other things. But it's always nice to uh, to, to keep involved uh, with the game. And I find that doing commentary is the best way of doing that. The other the other sort of gigs, as you call it, uh, within cricket being, uh, you know, your coaching uh, um, or you're umpiring or, or that sort of thing come with a lot more pressure than, than commentary and, yeah. and saying a few words. So uh, uh, I find it uh, you know, you know, very, uh, very therapeutic to get back and uh, you know, to keep connected with cricket from a commentary perspective. Um, and then uh, you know, when you talk about doing uh, stuff outside the game, I have uh, my Alistair Campbell High Performance Program that uh, really has uh, taken off. Gary Brent is the head coach. We're now uh, based just down the road here at the, the High Performance Hub in uh, Groombridge um, so uh, we've, uh, we've we've branched out we've luckily got a very good sponsor in the form of Baker's Inn that have come on board to uh, to look after not only the the, the main uh, ACHPP program but also we've started a Futures League the Baker's uh, Futures League Baker's Inn Futures League and that's uh, all kids that uh, come together and uh, we're playing a league on Sundays prior to this uh, pandemic 
So hopefully as things relax, we'll uh, be able to start that league again and uh, you know, get back to uh, coaching and uh, bringing together, hopefully, the stars of the future and uh, making sure that they have the best uh, facilities to train and the best coaches. And we're going to try and uh, really put uh, effort into uh, making sure that player pathway is bridged between uh, a talented high school or junior school player and the national side. And uh, you know, hopefully we can achieve that. Mm. I mean, because you did say that initially when the Alistair Campbell High Performance Program started, a lot of people felt that it was a bit limited, I, I suppose, in terms of reaching out to the youngsters. And I remember you making it very clear that it wasn't going to stay like that. And already you have now started implementing programs, despite the fact that, the, you know, that we are severely hampered by COVID, that you, that you still want to make sure that more and more people are able to be given a fair chance to play and hopefully succeed at the game. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, there, there is that element of trying to get uh, everybody, you know, lots of people involved in the game. But then there's the next step, which is where I really want to concentrate on is uh, once you've uh, been able to assess, uh, you know, different individuals that you've given that chance to, it's really putting some effort and uh, time and money into those people that uh, you think have got uh, the means to make it. And uh, that's what we want to concentrate on. So the, the Bakers in Futures League will be, you know, hopefully for the best young cricketers in Zimbabwe to play in a league. I remember when I was growing up is that it was league on a Saturday and then, uh, I mean, school cricket on a Saturday, league on a Sunday. Yeah. And you play twice in a weekend now, that's sort of fallen away. So we want to try and get back to that where the young kids are playing for their school on a, on a Saturday and then can play in a proper structured league on a Sunday. And uh, those that are too good for the league, hopefully uh, there'll be some uh, club cricket to speak of uh, moving forward and they can actually play uh, club cricket. So it's very important that uh, there is that sort of uh, pathway, as I said, to the national side because at the moment there's big gaps insofar as that pathway is concerned. So we'd like to try our, our little bit and with uh, good sponsors and, uh, and obviously uh, good coaches and top draw facilities at Old Georgian Sports Club and at the Hub that we're able to provide those facilities for these youngsters to really uh, progress and that's that's the key for me it's not just uh, paying lip service to getting people involved in the game it's really picking and identifying the best players and really putting effort into them so uh, you know we've uh, got some really good uh, talent coming through and we're able to get that uh, talent nurtured and uh, in the places they should be and vying for spots in the national side. Speaking of growing up, you have a rather unique uh, situation in the sense that you did everything right-handed, but you were then nurtured and developed into becoming a left-hander. Tell us a bit about that story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, my dad was just, he just loved the game and, uh, you know, he studied in those days, I suppose, all the, the manuals, the MCC manuals, the coaching manuals, you know, watching those VHS videos of, uh, you know, I remember going and uh, getting it for the weekend and watching the county championship games and the Gillette uh, Cup final and that sort of thing. But um, he's, he's, he was the, of the firm belief that, uh, you know, your, strong, your strongest hand should be your top hand. I mean, that theory now, when you see how the subcontinent players played in the in uh, subsequent to that and the big bottom hand but he was a believer that the top hand is your strongest hand and therefore if you're a natural right hander you should bat left handed because uh, the right hand is the top hand so that's what uh, that's what happened he turned me around and uh, you know I obviously started batting left handed but I do everything else right handed including uh, play golf and uh, I remember our first outing my dad bought us golf clubs uh, as a surprise but they were left handed my brother took to it uh, you know and hit them nicely and he was fine and I picked up the left-handed golf clubs and couldn't get the ball off the tee box. Oh. So, so that was a waste of time. I had to borrow his clubs. He was right-handed and then go back and exchange them for right-handed golf clubs. So I do everything else right-handed except for, except for bat. Was your dad quite, 
I don't want to use the word severe. Was he quite strict in implementing that and saying, look, I don't care whether you are right-handed and everything else that you do, but as far as I can help, and I will make very sure that you do become a left-hander, did he? And I suppose was he a bit of an enforcer when it came to that? Um, not really. I think that you're very malleable when you're a youngster. So, uh, you know, if, you, if you're told to bat a certain way, it's only a few sessions. You, you, you're really learning there, so it's easy to foment uh, certain things in certain uh, ways that uh, you wish to play. So um, once he did turn me around, and uh, it was a bit uncomfortable for a while, but then once you just keep doing it, it just becomes the norm. So uh, he, wasn't, uh, he, wasn't, uh, yeah, he wasn't forceful. He, w- he just was a student of the game. The, the amount of people, and you could talk to the guys that I grew up with and came to the house from, uh, you know, the overseas players that came here, from your Steve James. He became a very good mate to the Flowers, to, to the Brains, to all the guys that, uh, that played uh, with us, um, to the Strangs. Everyone came out there and everyone, you know, apart from uh, you know, playing a few games and having a few drinks in the bar, would always spend time to go and uh, sit with my old man in the lounge because uh, my old man was a teetotaler, so he you know, would come into the bar with his cup of tea and uh, have a few uh, you know, words to say. But then he'd generally go and watch the TV, go and sit in his, his uh, chair in the lounge and... Without fail, there would be uh, you know a sort of a troop of people going through, then spending their their half hour with the oracle, as it were, just picking his brain, talking cricket, and then coming back to festivity. So he just loved the game. He's a student of the game, not forceful, but when he spoke, people listened, and uh, you know he just he, he loved debating, discussing, and finding solutions. And uh, obviously, when it came to technique or tactics or any of that sort of stuff, he was. You know, the person that uh, that I would go to, you could debate, and uh, you know, sometimes the the truth was hard to accept. And you know, he used to sulk and throw a tantrum and whatnot, and then come back. But he was he was right. He watched it, and uh, he would, uh, in his own inimitable fashion, you know, try and get the the message across. But uh, never never forceful, never on the side of the the park shouting and that sort of thing. Yeah. Would always find a, a place under a tree and uh, put his deck chair up and uh, watch quietly. But uh, it was a it was a huge influence on my life. I'm sure he was immensely proud of what you achieved in terms of the success of Zimbabwe. Would you say that he, did he ever mention to you that he may have been a bit disappointed at the fact that after 60 test matches, unfortunately, despite your ability and talent, that you only averaged a fraction over 27 in test match cricket? Did he, you know, did he ever mention that or you know, is that something that he didn't venture towards? Yeah, we discussed it and... Um, and, and yeah, it it was. It's not only to to him, I suppose, but uh, to me as well. And I, it's just a pity that, uh, and it's been talked about, and you know, we won't delve into it. Mm. But you know, I, I was probably a, a late developer or a late learner as far as Test match cricket is concerned. But you know, if you look at my last Test match, and uh, and uh, sort of Jeff Marsh was the coach then. He had a habit of putting sort of uh, notes under the door prior to a test match and uh, you know about what he thought how your preparation had been and to see you know some words of encouragement and under the door he, he sort of put there he said this is the best you've prepared you in a good space you know and and I went out there I think I can't remember you know it got 40 odd and 60 odd gave it away again but I just uh, I just felt and that was I mean I retired when I was what 30 31 so if I'd had another four or five years playing test match cricket I think uh, you know in that space I think I'd uh, got to, got the measure of it, and it's just a pity I couldn't uh, sort of transform um, in those last uh, five years of my career. Um, I think I started working it out, and uh, you know, speaking to Flower and Hart, and it, it sort of it started clicking, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, I sort of yeah realised what what was required to to score runs, whereas before 
Um, I hadn't really worked that out. I was more of a white ball player, and you know, I think if T20 had been around in uh, in my day, I might have uh, taken to that uh, quite nicely. It was the sort of way that I played. So, um, yeah, disappointing, um, and uh, but more disappointing not to have been able to to uh, sort of finish up those last four or five years and uh, set the record straight, as it were. I mean, I just remember as a as an observer, um, just being so, and it must have, it really must have upset you immensely, especially. But you know that that typical left-hander class that you had. I mean, everybody is very quick to say that, for example, you know, if, you, if between yourself and the Flower Brothers, you had all the class and the ability and the natural flair and, and everything that a left-hander has. Whereas the Flowers definitely weren't as talented as you, but um, you know they they were able to deliver a bit more consistently. But one thing that I always remember, just feeling so disappointed about when watching you bat, is you would have these beautiful little steers, you know, through the slips and down to third man. But sometimes, even though there were three slips waiting, unfortunately, in looking to play one of those beautiful little dabs, you'd end up basically, you know, giving the slip fielder fielding practice and hitting it straight to him at slip or losing your balance and being caught at mid-wicket, I think, because, for example, your head would maybe fall away a bit. And it must have been, and you always looked like you were going to score runs. That was the thing that really frustrated people is you never looked out of Nick, as they say in cricketing terms. You know, you, some batsmen from Zimbabwe, you would see, oh, gosh, the feet aren't moving. There's a play in a miss here. From the beginning, you got to the crease, you middled it, you got to 20, 30, 60, 70 in no time, and the next thing you're walking back to the pavilion, I would imagine, did it end up giving you sleepless nights and, and you know, really disappointing you? Um, I suppose at the time, you, you, there's a lot of demons that creep in as yeah. you have the more and more you play international cricket. You mentioned Andy Flower, and he worked it out pretty well and, uh, and you know, got his uh, act together and his, mentally his act together uh, really early on. And, uh, um, and and we were able to feed off that. I think Dave Houghton was someone that... Uh, it also, uh, you know, got to the the, the sort of uh, the mechanics of Test match cricket and uh, what's required to be successful there. And, and Andy was the same. Um, Grant, to a certain extent, just uh, probably overthought things too much. Was too hard on himself. Trained too hard. You know, put too much pressure on himself. Um, whereas I was a little more uh, happy-go-lucky and uh, probably, yeah, I, I needed to, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, get a lot more focused and uh, and work things out a lot quicker than I did in the red ball format. As I said, the white ball format was more uh, my cup of tea and opening the batting and uh, and being a, having the freedom to play shots. And I wasn't uh, I didn't really wasn't really able to adapt uh, to the to the red ball stuff as quickly as I should have. And you know, leave a lot more balls alone, be a lot, a lot more circumspect. I always wanted to try and dominate the bowler and uh, you know show who was boss. And you know. You read all these things, and I read them, but they didn't really, you know, resonate at the time. You know, you'd read what did Sunil Gavaskar say, or, or Jeff Boycott. You know, he talked about giving the first half hour to the bowler, and then the rest, the next five and a half hours, is mine. So you'd read that and talk about it, but it didn't really sink in. Whereas, you know, if you want to play Test match cricket? That's what you got to do. You got to have a solid defence, and uh, and obviously, if you've got that, then you can uh, begin the process of where you want to score and how you want to score. And uh, and I didn't really do that, and I needed to sort of cut down on the repertoire of uh, shots that I had and uh, really just identify uh, two or three that would be bread and butter that you could score from. And that, you know, the classic example from from sort of my era is Steve Waugh that also started as a, you know, swashbuckler and then decided, right, I'm not going to pull, I'm just going to work on, you know, clipping the ball off my legs and I'm going to work on cutting. That's all. You bowl in those areas and you're dead. 
the rest of the time I'm going to be looking to get down the other end and if it's short you know he went through a patch where he wore a few and everyone thought he was uh, you know couldn't play the short ball but uh, he had made the decision that I'm not going to get out to it so if I'm in trouble I'm just going to take it and uh, he made those sorts of decisions and uh, found a way to be one of the you know the best players oh, yeah. in, in the world so uh, um, and there's look there's a few that have uh, decided to play the same way all the way through and they've been the pioneers um, I think that also is determined by where you bat and I talk about Adam Gilchrist is that and one day cricket able to, uh, you know, uh, open the batting and set a benchmark for, you know, how uh, openers should should play alongside uh, the Sri Lankans. It really took it to a different level, Sanajaya Sarir and uh, and that lot. But uh, when it came to uh, Test match cricket, he batted number seven and just played the same way. You know, dominated the bowlers. But I think from the platform that he was given in most Test matches with Australia, he was able to play oh, that yes. way. Yeah. Um, I, you know, against the new ball, I don't think if he had had to bat in the first three that he necessarily would have been. Uh, able to do that or had the freedom to play that that way so uh, you know I was a top three batsman top four batsman so you have to play a certain way you you know you've got to be circumspect you know especially now you see in England you know with the Dukes ball and that sort of thing it's uh, when the ball moves around it's tough work and uh, you've got to give yourself a chance and uh, I I suppose that's you know summing it up I didn't give myself a chance and when I did get a start um, sort of uh, uh, what do you want to call the mental frailties, lacks, lack of concentration uh, at a split second, you know, cost me. And uh, and having it all again, as I said, if the, I started working out and realised what I needed to do, and I just think if I'd had that next four or five years, it would have been a different story. One test series that always spring to mind was Zimbabwe's first trip to Pakistan in 1993. So everybody was still very new and inexperienced at playing test match cricket. Andy Flower was the captain, the late John Hampshire was the coach. Three test matches, and although Zimbabwe lost the series 2-0, all of you played some incredibly good cricket at times. Certainly Heath Street got his first five for there when he made his, you know, in the same series that he made his debut. David Brain also bowled nicely. Edo Brandis had reasonable performances. But you had a, a fantastic time of it. Yes, I know. I understand that you got three fifties, and possibly you would have liked to have converted one of them or even all of them into hundreds. But the manner in which you really took on Waka, Yunus and Wasim Akram, was that something that, that you sort of wanted to do? Um, you know, so is it something that you thought of ahead of going to the crease or is it something that just happened when you got to the crease? Yeah, as I said, that's, you know, you're playing by instinct. So you're yeah. going to have your times when you're successful. But if you want to be consistently successful, you've got to be more circumspect. You've got to work, off, work, work on your game. So I was young, naive, and I just, you know, see the ball, hit the ball. So... You know, those guys were, you know, they had been, you know, the world over and were knocking people over for fun, wacko bowling those uh, 150k an hour reverse swingers and, you know, Wassim hooping it everywhere, green wickets they prepared. They just thought they were going to intimidate us. And uh, what they didn't quite understand that, uh, you know, once you prepare green wickets, it brought the sides close together because their batsmen ain't, were, ain't flash on uh, green wickets either. So you talk about Streaky and Brain and uh, Branders and whatnot. I mean, Dibbly Dobblers getting it up there, they were nicking it for fun as well. So we were in the game. Um, and uh, and I remember, yeah, just, you know, threw a bit of caution to the wind and uh, played a few shots and rattled them, really. And uh, I remember even in, in Karachi, I think, the first test, and uh, Grant and I were batting together, and Grant, you know, really early on, he was reverse swinging at uh, Wacko Yunus, and Grant was struggling with them. And I remember I said, OK, I'll stay down this end, you stay down the other end. And uh, it really frustrated them, because uh, even though there were easy singles and offer, we just uh, blunted the new ball with that sort of method. So we were young, carefree, naive, and as I said before, the demons started creeping in and whatnot. But it, it was a really good time. And, I, yeah, we probably should have uh, 
we should have won our first test match there in Raul Pindi. Mm, and uh, I remember we're chasing, uh, uh, I don't know what it was, 220, I think. 241. 241, there we go. And uh, I think we were like 130 for one, 140 yes. for one. I was in and uh, we were doing it uh, easy. And then uh, I was given out LBW. I want to see that footage again because <laughs> it wasn't out. And, uh, and then Wacker came back and bowled those reverse swingers and uh, cleaned us up. I think uh, bowled us out for 190 or, or, yeah. or it was a big collapse. But if I just hung in there and I look back in those sort of moments, you, you, know, you had the opportunity to hang in there, get 100 and win the game for your country. Those are, those are frustrating more than the, the low scores. It's when you really had a chance to, to get 100, but also get your team over the line. I suppose in, in golfing parlance, it's like going down the stretch on Sunday. That's why you, you play the game. And you know, that test match, when you actually can score big runs to win a game, that's when the juices are flowing and I really remember that day that it was coming out the middle and uh, you know maybe you know you know, got a bit greedy probably should have played a lot straighter and, and whatnot with the LBW but uh, you know probably should have realised at that stage the significance and just uh, been able to see it through um, which is frustrating but it was it was a great tour and as I said we were, it were there were close test matches and uh, we were in the, every game every single one of them and uh, it was really nice I mean we played a lot of games against uh, Wasim and Wacko mm, <laughs> I mean yeah. plenty of them and uh, in their prime so uh, you know it it was it was really, it was really tough going, and not only them. When they finished bowling, then you had Mushtaq Ahmed that came on, and then you know Shaybak, Akhtar, Akib Javed later. I mean, they had some really uh, good bowlers. Always had good bowlers, um, but it was uh, we had some fascinating contests with them, uh, especially in Pakistan. And uh, you know, we did win the one series. I think was that the series after that? I can't remember. Yeah, nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah, we won that one 0 yeah. Saved by the fog. There were a lot of fogs. <laughs> I think a few of the test matches were fogged out, but managed to win that again. They they decided to play us on green wickets, and I it couldn't fathom that because on flat wickets when they could get the ball to reverse swing from early on they would have nailed us it would have been over in three days but they decided to play on green wickets and brought us into the game and uh, yeah we, we we thrived on that so you took over as captain in 1996 i mean a lot of things happened before you took over as captain i obviously that first test win again that was against pakistan at harari sports club i've interviewed both the flyer brothers and they've given me their it, it, it was so nice to hear the different perspectives so for example Andy Flower, you know, as much as he remembers the the big partnership between himself and his brother Grant, what he remembers the he remembers the most and enjoyed the most was the way Zimbabwe hunted, to quote him, hunted down the twenty wickets. Grant Flower remembers that he was able to see what Wasim Akram was going to do, how the ball came out of his hand. Dave Houghton, his biggest memory of that test match was the catching. You know, the catching was just unbelievable from a Zimbabwean perspective. And he, was even with a broken hand, if you remember, took a brilliant catch in the gully to dismiss Amir Sahel. Um, you know, his streak, when I spoke to him, he said, well, I remember Andy Flower coming into the dressing room and saying that Salim Malik tried to cheat in terms of, of, of the, the tossing at the, of, of the coin. You know, so there's so many different memories that people have other than Streak taking nine wickets in the test match, the Flower brothers getting those, those very big hundreds, Guy Whittle getting a hundred as well, Henry Alonga being the first black player to make his debut and then sadly got called for throwing. That was a test match steeped in history. Everything that could happen possibly happened and in Zimbabwe winning the test match as well. I'm wondering what your memories were that really stand out. I think we were like five for two, and I'd got out, and then I remember watching the partnership for the next day and a half. But I, I do remember, I do remember that toss factor. I, I remember uh, having to redo it, where uh, you know uh, Sanam Malik uh, didn't call uh, as coherently as he should have put it that way, and uh, 
uh, match referee wasn't happy and uh, they said they'd bat first and then had to retoss and then we said we'd bat first and uh, obviously posted a big score. Um, so I remember that. Didn't Kyle Whittle get a 200 in that game as well? I think um, he got the 200 against New Zealand. New but, Zealand, but, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, but he got 113, not out. 113, to, to that get was Grant it. to his double 100. Yeah, yeah so yeah, uh, yeah. I remember Guy, I knew he got a score there, so I remember that. What I do remember is uh, we took all our catches. I think Carlisle took a good one, yeah, diving yeah. at mid-wicket, all the slip catches. We didn't drop a catch. We really, uh, every opportunity that was created by the bowlers, we, we snaffled it. And uh, that, that, for me, I, I remember that aspect as we talked about it, is that uh, it was just from that perspective. Um, we had a plan of just that channel. Uh, you know, they always, uh, the Pakistan batsmen, because of the nature of the wickets they grow up on and uh, risky players, just, you know, like to play that little cover drive, the square drive, yeah. that, uh, just that channel. Give them nothing on their pads because uh, obviously they like it through there. So we had a plan just outside that uh, off stump, corridor of uncertainty, as uh, Jeffrey would say. And, uh, you know, we managed to just build pressure, build pressure, build pressure and, uh, and, and take all our chances. Remember in those days also, you know, uh, uh, God rest his soul, Charles Wallace, and he was yeah. preparing the ground. He kept putting tobacco on the on the tobacco scrap on yeah, the ground. So that, yeah. the sports club, I mean, the, the grass was so thick that uh, I mean you couldn't even get it through the infield. So we just sort of with our uh, dibbly doublers, as it were, you know, ring field, some slips in there, and just bowled, and they, they just couldn't get it off the square. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so from that perspective, I just remember getting that big score, and then we were able to enforce the follow on and uh, and obviously take all our chances and uh, comprehensive in the end. It was a great feeling. Just explain a bit for somebody who wouldn't quite understand uh, what what tobacco would do to make it so difficult. So why would Charles Wallace uh, sprinkle the grass with with tobacco and what would then cause the the ball to not really get through the outfield? Because as you say, what was it, Kukuyu grass, that very thick grass at at Harare Sports Club. But just for the novice, what would the tobacco do to uh, make run scoring or getting it through the field so difficult? Well, let's go. I think that the theory initially, I think we all did it, is that you got tobacco scrap from the auction floors in yesteryear to put in your front garden. So, number one, it was good for the grass, got the grass growing, but number two, killed the bugs. So uh, that was the theory. He got it for free. So instead of using fertilizer, we'll put the tobacco scrap on. Whereas fertilizer dissolves and uh, gets through the soil, tobacco doesn't dissolve. So every year you put it on. It just caked. It just created another layer, another layer, another layer. So, you know, at the end of it, it was just so thick that uh, it was nigh impossible to hit the ball through there. And I I remember, you know, I talk about that test match, but when England came and uh, Mike Atherton and those English players are so used to, you know, with those long squares in England that, uh, you know, used to just push it into the gap and it runs away to the boundary for four or get on the back foot and just punch it through the gap. And they were trying to do that at the Rory Sports Club and it was just dribbling to backward point. (laughs) It got so frustrated they couldn't couldn't hit it off the square. So, uh, yeah, and then uh, obviously something had to be done about it and I think uh, Zimbabwe cricket hired uh, Clive Morgordon, uh, Dirk Morgordon, Clive's son, Dirk Morgordon. And and, uh, um, and they uh, he came in there and scarified it. So what he had to do every year was just scarify it, you know, get the the tobacco out of there and thin it up a bit, and uh, and to, you know then it started rolling nicely and you got value for your runs. But there was a while there where I tell you what, I mean, you look at some of the scores there. That's why I think it's a bit skewed. Is that for years, sort of? Uh, I know it was a different era, so it was a different mindset. But for years, sort of uh, one ninety to two ten was a you know two twenty was a par score to Rory Sports Club. That, uh, and once the field got sorted out, you saw those scores uh, improving. Oh, yeah. So I think that played, played a part as well in those uh, early years. Um, so the 1996 World Cup uh, was a, a really big disappointment for Zimbabwe in the subcontinent. The only team Zimbabwe were able to beat was, was Kenya, and, and they struggled. Paul Strand got five wickets, but really struggled to chase down a, a pretty you know, a tricky total, just over 130. 
you, you didn't play too badly against Sri Lanka, but they obviously were the world champions and they were totally unbeatable in their conditions. So then it was decided that it's now the time has now come for a complete change of the guard. Andy Flower decided to resign as captain because he was the captain at the time. He wanted to take stock of, of his cricket. Um, but also there was a, chi- a time to, to change the coaching. So John Hampshire had done his bit and, and Dave Houghton was then, implemented, then brought into the side as coach. It, it just felt to me also, Al, that there was a bit of a division. So John Hampshire still felt that you know he wanted Zimbabwe to play a very circumspect game of cricket, whereas you as players felt that, look, we've been doing that now for the last four years. We feel that we've become good enough to to express ourselves a bit more and actually lose games in order to try and win them. Was that something that you also felt when you took over as captain? Yeah, you make a good point. I, you know, I'm not sure that it was, uh, it was you know, verbalized in a, in, a, in a forum, you know, like discussed where we actually wanted to, to go. I, I think it was uh, gradually we were getting better and, and were anxious to take it to the next level. Um, and I remember, you know, Dave Houghton bringing the South African blue, blueprint and he managed to get it through Bob Wilmer. And you know how to play their. They've got a had their plan of how to play one day cricket, how to play test match cricket. They had sort of devised a formula of uh, how they wanted to play, and we sort of cribbed a bit from that and try to take what uh, suited us. And uh, you know, obviously try and play a bit more aggressive. I know that you know I sort of. Uh, Opening the batting in one-day cricket, playing a, a lot more aggressively to take advantage of uh, the first 15 overs in those days. And so far as field set is concerned, and get us off to fast starts, uh, trying to take a sort of uh, a leaf out of the Sri Lankan uh, book. In so far as their aggressive nature, you know, Jayasuriya, Kaluatharana, opening the batting, and uh, really, and then allowing the middle order, Aravinda and Arjuna, just to knock it around. Same with us. We're sort of uh, let's try and get a fast start, and then Andy comes in, and Dave Houghton can knock it around, and uh, you know, sort of get us to a, get us. To a total, so I think that we did discuss it. Not, not it wasn't uh, sort of uh, you know as I said, uh, not sure it was a sort of a, a line in the sand saying we we need to go to the next level. I always believe that we never, uh, particularly leading up to '99 World Cup and just after, so that sort of '97 to 2000. I just I think we're playing really good cricket, had really good people um, in the side, really talented guys, and uh, I just don't think that we fully believed in ourselves, fully believed in our own capabilities. You know, we still. When we beat sides, we still took it as uh, a shock or took it as, you know, one for the underdog, as it were. It, uh, we never sort of uh, quite believed that, uh, you know, when we went on there that, uh, you know, hey, we, we, we're on a level footing here. We've got, uh, we've got some equally good players. And, uh, you know, when I talk about that, you talk about your, your Johnsons and Goodwins and Flowers and some of the innings and uh, some of the contributions that uh, those guys made. And then you've got Streaky and, and Branders and... Uh, Backed up with, uh, you know, some Strangs and, and Huckles and all that. There were some really terrific uh, players. So I think that we didn't fully fully believe. I think if we just had a bit more ounce of self-belief, all of us, um, we could have actually achieved a bit more. But we, we knocked over the best in the world in that, uh, in that particular time and played some really competitive cricket, particularly in the, the white ball format, the one-day stuff. Um, so I suppose from 96, if you talk about it, because I looked, that coincided with us winning a few more games and, and competing with the, the best sides in the world, that uh, I do think that uh, there was a sort of uh, a shift, whether it was uh, you know, consciously or subconsciously. But 
a sort of a, a shift in uh, you know the way that we wanted to play. You know, Hamps was always a sort of a simple things done well in the corridor of uncertainty. You know, bore them to death, and uh, you know, like uh, make sure you know keep your keep your wicket intact and that sort of thing. So, real bulldog uh, English spirit. Whereas uh, for us, it was no, the game's evolving. Uh, we need to keep up. We need to keep abreast. And we sort of uh, got that from the sides we played against. That they were going, hey, these guys are now you know taking us on in the first fifteen overs. These guys are now doing this. They're doing that. This is how they're bowling at the death. So we sort of learnt as we went along and uh, sort of adapted that to our game. But we sort of got uh, got dragged along, as it were, to to improve, you know, or the way we played the game, as opposed to be pioneers and sat down and said, "Hey, we want to we want to take this to the to the next level." What would you say was the happiest time of your your captains here? When, when was the time that you really felt, "Gosh, it's good to be going to work," so to speak? Um, I suppose the best time was uh, because it came with a lot more scrutiny and, and, and we had the success was against uh, the English when they came out here uh, that uh, we flip and murdered them uh, tour of Bumble Lloyd and uh, where we, uh, yeah, that infamous uh, test in Bulawayo, the tight test in Bulawayo, drawn test in Bulawayo, yeah. um, where uh, we played within the laws of the game, the bowling wide, got streaky to bowl wide of leg and off stump and, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, probably not... Uh, as uh, you know, as sportsmanlike as uh, what should have been done within the, the the laws of the ICC, but not within the spirit, some would have argued. Um, but uh, and then the one day is we just we annihilated them. I mean, we you know everyone was on top of the game. Brand has played superbly well. You know, who can forget that hat trick? I got runs as well. It's always easy to uh, to to or easier to captain when you you're sort of uh, contributing yourself as a player. Um, you know that takes some of the pressure off, and uh, that series I was contributing with the bat, playing really nicely. Uh, probably should have got a hundred again and pull away in the Test match, uh, threw it away and uh, ninety or eighty-eight or whatever it was. Yeah, uh, 90, yeah. um, but we really dominated there, and they had uh, you know some decent players. They were you know whinging and moaning about touring Zimbabwe and not really getting out and about. Uh, they were, you know it was it was good to get one over them, and uh, you know we were playing well. We we're in a happy space. The, the country was in a happy space. The crowds were huge. I mean, I remember the guys queuing, you know, for, for ages outside the Rory Sports Club to get in. And, you know, they built temporary stands and whatnot. It was it was a great time to be playing. That period from sort of, uh, yeah, sort of uh, 96 to 99, you know, and up into it, including that World Cup, we played some, some really good cricket. And uh, as I said, we took on the best in the world, beat the best in the world, were really competitive. And uh, But that England tour stands out because, as I said, of the, the added... Uh, sort of needle and scrutiny to be able to to get it done then was very pleasing. So you speak of the 99 World Cup. Obviously, that was incredibly special. Henry Alonga was just amazing in the way that he took those three wickets uh, in in one over, not a hat-trick, but the three in one over to beat India. And then, of course, Zimbabwe's win over South Africa. I think many people feel still to this day would be their best one-day international performance ever because they beat the the favourites of, of the World Cup. But uh, as a captain... When you gave the ball to Henry Longa, was this just a case of, you know what, just let's get it on and actually finish this game? Or did you honestly and truly believe that if Henry gets one here, this could lead to some incredible things happening? What went through your mind when you tossed the ball to Henry that day when he took the three wickets? Yeah, I suppose a variety of things. Dave Houghton tells me to this day, he was there, you know, gesticulating from the, the sidelines saying, you know, give it to, to Henry. And uh, it was it was sort of, uh, it, it was where to fit him in, you know. And, and, you know, it got to the stage where, yeah, we didn't have any bowlers left um, apart from some spinners and some, uh, some medium paces. So, it, you know, when I grabbed Henry, I said, listen, I know he had a problem with spraying at that game. Just hadn't been a great game up to then. But what he did have and, and, and had throughout his career was pace. 
So uh, I just said to him, we're, we're not hiding to nothing here. So his point is running up and, you know, watching where your front foot goes or, you know, don't want to bowl a wide, you know, just put it there in, in bowling uh, yeah. parlance. Just run in there and bowl as fast as you can. Bowl at the stumps. And, and the way we're going to win this is that you're going to knock them over. It, it, it has to be that way. So just don't worry about it. I mean, if we four wides or whatever, it is what it is. But if we're going to win this game, you have to bowl as quick as you can. And uh, if you look at the footage, and he's running in, and he, that's what he does. And I think chipped up to mid-wicket, chipped it to me. Yeah. Luckily, I managed to snaffle it and then got to Boulder and LBW or whatever. But he ran in bowl quick, and I suppose he, to this day, believes in destiny, and, you know, it was what's meant to be is meant to be. Um, but uh, I know guys have told me they were watching here in the various houses and, and pubs and whatnot, and we're going, Campbell, what are you doing? That's just disaster. Why don't you just give them the game? I mean, they're throwing things at the TV or turn TVs off and whatnot, and then... Won the game, and I, I do believe that. I think that uh, you know, you know, for the age-old cliche, every dog has his day. Is that you know, when it's your day, sometimes it's your day, and uh, you know, to me, it was the logical choice because there was no one else that really could win the game for us. Put it that way. Um, whereas Henry, as I said, for me, and, and there was some sort of science behind it, saying that uh, just use your pace; it's a weapon against tail enders. Bowl as fast as you can, which he did do, and he managed to get a few straight. So. Uh, um, it worked. It's gone down in history, as I said. <laughs> it's one of those uh, great finishes in, in World Cup cricket. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was so satisfying because we had, we had started off that, top, uh, that tour poorly. We had lost to two county sides. There was a bit of uh, animosity in the camp. And, you know, guys, we ought to take this more seriously. We're having too much of a good time. You know, there's too much drinking going on. Stop this. Let's concentrate. And then, you know, we played, I think it uh, was Kenya. We, we beat them, but not convincingly. You know, managed to get over the line. And then we got uh, beaten by Sri Lanka. Just a lackluster performance. I think at New Road, and then uh, yeah, we, we England again. We lost, but that again had its own connotations because uh, they took their time to get to our total. Yes. If you remember, and that you know that meant that they didn't get into the Super Six stage. So uh, you know they they lost out there, and then obviously we needed to win the two games. And prior to that uh, South Africa game you mentioned, I mean I had uh, you know we had sort of. Uh, I had my wife with me, and, and she she said, "Should I go and do the washing?" Which we, you know, did prior to every game and and whatnot. And I said, "Well, it's pointless going spending the money doing the washing because we're playing South Africa tomorrow." So, uh, you know, why bother to go home with clean clothes type of scenario, you know? <laughs> so uh, I, I think that part of the reason the success against South Africa was because we didn't put too much pressure on ourselves. So we didn't have a, a serious team meeting, you know, like, guys, how do we beat these guys? Because on paper, they weren't beatable, you know? <laughs> so you're just going, well, we, you know, we'll just turn up there. So there was no pressure. You know, we didn't really, really believe that we could win. I mean, everyone just wanted to finish the World Cup on a high. Let's not get absolutely murdered yet, you know? Um, and so went in with no pressure, and I've spoken to Alan Donald subsequently, and uh, he said that he had a go at Hansi because they didn't take it as seriously as they should have. And uh, he said that, you know, he was saying, hey, guys, they've got some good players. Can we talk about some of our tactics and whatnot? And Hansi was going, don't worry about that. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let's not over, overthink this yeah. sort of, these yeah, sort of games and whatnot. Yeah. Whereas Alan was saying, well, I think we're taking them too lightly. And he, and he, he told me this. And, he, and, and Hansi said, no, nah, don't worry about it. It's, it's fine. Gosh. And the rest is history. And I've never seen, a, you know, normally when you play against South Africa, particularly in, a, in England, you know, there's a lot of uh, Saffirs that are over there as well. But the, at the end of it, I was standing doing an interview on the, on the Essex balcony with uh, Mikey Holding. And um, he was uh, asking me a few questions. And I just looked out and I just saw a sea of red. I mean, it was just, it was filled with red. There wasn't a green shirt in the crowd. I mean, just the whole of the diaspora, Zimbabweans had uh, come out. But also, a lot of guys had flown over just for the, just for the World Cup. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a sight to behold. And it just didn't really dawn on us that, uh, hey, hold on, we've, uh, we're, in the, we're in the Super 6 stage. Can you believe it? And uh, not only that, but uh, we're carrying all our points with me. <laughs> so we were, we were, we were, 
you know, we were we were ecstatic, and uh, obviously a bit of maths and Herschel Gibbs's drop catch cost us a place in the semi final. Really, not didn't everyone says it cost them the World Cup? You've dropped the World Cup, but he also, if he had caught that, Australia had lost. We were in the semi finals, so he did us. You know, no one talks about that. We we had done the the biggest disservice as far as I'm concerned. But now, all right, so you said that there was no pressure, and you're absolutely right going into the game against South Africa. But now when you get runs on the board and suddenly you start getting wickets and South Africa were in tatters at 50-odd for six, you know, and then there's a bit of a partnership developing, do you then start to actually think to yourselves, guys, we really do have an opportunity of beating the favourites of the World Cup? Because prior to that, at the Wanderers in South Africa in 1997, uh, Zimbabwe got very close to beating them, but Sean Pollock scored some runs. You know, there were there were opportunities in South Africa where Zimbabwe got very close and couldn't quite finish it off. Now, this could have once again have been a situation where so easily South Africa's lower order could have recovered and still got those runs. You know, so then is it then suddenly do you then suddenly feel that we are actually under a bit of pressure because we now do have an opportunity of doing something very special? Yeah, I mean, look, it's sort of one of those games. At half at halfway mark, it, there was a 10-minute rain shower from yes. nowhere. Oh, so right. the covers went on. And then I remember uh, uh, standing at uh, Slip. We always just started with a couple of slips or Slip Gully or, you know. And um, they're standing there, Andy Fly, Andy Whittle standing, normally field at second slip. And I said, just go to like a fourth slip. And uh, uh, I don't know why, but I said, just go there. And uh, first ball, Gary Kirsten. Um, edges it straight to Andrew Whittle would have been uh, all of us with our hands on our heads going oh that was so close one down to third man ends up being a wicket first ball so you just got, sort of got the feeling and then there were five down but the thing that made South Africa s- so formidable in, uh, in those days was uh, their all-rounders so even you talk about five down they were still I think Pollock was batting number nine yeah. It was crazy. They, they, it was an embarrassment of riches, and yet Klusner still there. I mean, they had some serious batsmen still to come, and, and Essex was, is a small ground. It's too small for those guys, and a quick outfield. That you know, I, I just thought even at five down, six down, and Andy was there. He kept reminding guys, you, you've got to pay attention here. This is serious because these guys can take this game away from us in a flash and a blur. And, uh, you know, they, there was a bit of a partnership developing, and Klusner had had a terrific World Cup up to that stage. And I just think in his mind, he thought it was another way of just uh, saving South Africa and playing a match-winning innings. You know, that's how he thought. And he was hitting it out the middle of the bat. And, uh, yeah, I think Adam Huckle got a run out. It was yes. a crucial run out. And forget who it was, Boucher or one of them ran him out. And then, uh, yeah, we chipped away and just managed to sneak in in the end. But uh, what a game. And, and the euphoria, as I said afterwards, it didn't quite sink in for a while. But uh, it, that, that period from that uh, sort of... Uh, that win against uh, uh, South Africa, that, that last win, was, uh, was huge. And then obviously into, into that Super 6, and, uh, and uh, we didn't play particularly well against, uh, against Pakistan. I remember I dropped Saeed Anwar at the Oval on Nort. He got 130. We got cleaned up there. Um, but one of the great days was against Australia at the, at the Oval. I mean, they got 300. I tell you what, we're in the hunt for a while and then uh, fell short in the end. But Neil Johnson, you know, magnificent 100. Um, chasing that 300 and uh, you know again just probably you know made a few mistakes but didn't quite believe didn't you know in those days chasing down 300 to win a game was unheard of now you know it's sort of a given given t20 cricket and the 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 parameters that have been set now but in those days for us to chase down 300 you know against australia was unheard of and I, i just think when we you know got close there when neil johnson's playing nicely we're needing sort of eight and over which is nothing these days seven eight and over we we sort of faltered a bit under pressure yeah, I remember Heath Street taking a lot of flack uh, for that because they felt that, you know, when when he came to the crease, the run rate was still the required run rate was still very manageable, but he just wasn't getting the ball off the square. And and a lot of people were of the opinion that, 
streak often didn't really live up to the expectations that many people had of him as a batsman because he always, you know, in their mind, left it a bit too late before he tried to do something about it. But what they don't understand is that he was up against Fleming and McGrath, who were very good death bowlers as well. So I don't know whether the... It'll be interesting to hear your opinion. I don't know whether the criticism was justifiable or not. You know, just maybe even if you tried to get off strike and get Neil Johnson back on strike, whereas he was facing a lot of deliveries and not doing anything with them. Yeah, look, Streaky's played some really top innings for us down the order to rescue situations, to win us games. I mean, the game he won for us uh, in uh, Auckland at Eden Park, uh, unbelievable from a situation we're dead and buried. So uh, he did uh, some terrific things down the order there. And uh, I actually can't remember that, you know, and it might have been the case. But, uh, you know, it's not for for want of trying. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's some seriously good uh, good bowlers there. And Australia, I mean, you look at that area, you look at that Australian side, you look at that South African side, you look at the Pakistan side. I mean, he's... These are serious cricketers. I mean, that era, that was sort of the golden era, that 99 World Cup of uh, everyone was fit and, uh, and rearing to go. I mean, apart from us, India, when Sachin Tendulkar wasn't playing because his father had died, so he wasn't playing in that game. But everyone was fit and rearing to go, and it was the, the world's best there. So, I mean, that, that might have happened. As I said, it doesn't stand out to me, but uh, Streaky played some terrific innings for us down there. So if that was on one occasion that, hey, sometimes you go out there and it just you, you can't get it off the square. You just feel out of sorts, and, uh, and maybe that was one of those days. Later on during 1999, you then decided, in fact, it was when South Africa were here. Do you remember we had that bizarre situation where South Africa played Zimbabwe in a one-off test match in Bloemfontein, and then two weeks later, the two teams met here again at uh, Harare Sports Club to, to play another one-off test. So that was quite strange. And it, it was just before that test in Harare where you decided to relinquish the captaincy. You'd had enough now. Uh, and Andy Flower then once again took back the captaincy. You, you really seem to be in a very unhappy space and place when you relinquish the captaincy. What, what was happening there? Was it just a lack of form that was, that was happening or were there things happening behind the scenes also that we weren't too sure about? Yeah, I mean, a combination of things. I think that there was uh, yeah, a lack of form, but also, I don't know, after a while, you just, you just have enough. I mean, uh, you know, being captain is, uh, in those days is a pretty solitary life because you've got to try and lead from example and, uh, you know, you've got to try and lead from the front and uh, I think that uh, I wasn't having a particularly uh, uh, solid time with the coach either with Dave Houghton with uh, um, with some of the senior players and whatnot and it was just sort of one of those times I mean you can you can you can hang on and try and resolve it I suppose or you can decide that listen let's just have a fresh new approach I'll just go and be part of the rank and file again and uh, and we can get on with it you know and uh, and have a new lease of life insofar as uh, that that method is concerned. So, um, I, to be honest, it's, I'm poor with remembering some of yeah. the things or, or emotions. But I just, yeah, I just remember when you're going home and you're just going, you know what? I, you talk about getting up in the morning and uh, and you know wanting to to really go to work and uh, do your work to the best of your ability. When you when you when you're struggling to do that, then you you need to make some interventions. And uh, you know, as I said, one of them was to try and say, well, now I'll hang in there and uh, and it'll come right, and I'll try and make a you know. Try and try and do something differently, or just say let's have a, let's wipe it clean, and that's that's always a, a good thing as well. You know, give somebody else a, a go. Although it was Andy Flower, but he's you know safe pair of hands. He's, he knew what was required, and uh, um, and and get in and, and let's uh, let somebody else do it their way for a while, and uh, and you just fit in and concentrate on my game. I suppose that was my my rationalisation was that uh, was to just say, well, listen, don't worry about all the vagaries and the pressures of captaincy. Now I can just focus on on my game and try and get that to the best of. Uh, 
get that up to scratch. Yeah. And uh, 2000 turned out to be the best year for you because you scored, in terms of one-day cricket, you scored 960-odd runs at, at an average of 36 or 37, which, you know, by Zimbabwe standards, given even in those years the limited cricket they played, was actually pretty good. But do, do you feel also, Alistair, that sometimes the team got caught up a bit in the whole money issue? So Murray Goodwin and Neil Johnson, I suppose, were the, the pioneers, having come from very established uh, you know, first-class structures where they got looked after very nicely. Do you think that that rubbed off on the team and maybe there was a bit too much emphasis placed on that? I remember, for example, there was a strange situation where Zimbabwe were playing a warm-up match against Kent and you got Andy Flower standing in the slips talking on his mobile phone about money investments and how it should be, you know, how the money should be invested correctly with Matthew Fleming. Do you remember that very good uh, SEMA all-rounder, really? So, you know, is that something that, that maybe got a bit ahead of you that you focused a bit too much on that and took your eye off the, the ball or was it something that needed to be done in, in terms of players being remunerated needed to be done simple answer um, and um, you know Andy and I were sort of the, the the leaders the pioneers of the Zimbabwe Professional Cricketers Association and try to get a nice constitution going and uh, uh, obviously got Kevin Arnott involved lawyer so we did it properly it wasn't just a spur of the moment say pay us more money <laughs> let's go and sort of uh, dance in the streets and, and whatnot I mean we tried to do it properly and the first approach to Zimbabwe cricket and everyone's gone through this from Australia with the packer and, and that sort of thing you've got you to have everyone's gone through it so we uh, we went there and said listen guys we, we need to be remunerated properly because if we're going to do this uh, uh, full time you know there were only a handful of us that were getting paid as coaches it wasn't you know and then getting match fees there was no retainer for being a professional cricketer um, so it needed to change we needed to go into the professional era uh, simple as that really and uh, it got a bit uh, heated there was a bit of animosity threatening of not playing games um, what happened after that was um, you know there would be uh, uh, clearly one of the, the points was that uh, there would uh, be no vendettas. There would be no grudges held. Um, but that clearly was not upheld by ZC because Andy was uh, um, you know, turf from the captaincy, for want of a better phrase, after that. And uh, that had its own connotations. Um, but uh, what it did succeed in doing was laying the platform for a, a professional cricketers association, for, for us getting better remunerated, for a platform with which to go to Zimbabwe cricket and get it done properly. And uh, we appointed our representative in the end, um, and uh, uh, ZC had their representative, two esteemed uh, business people and, uh, and with legal and accounting minds. And uh, ours was Dave Bain that uh, worked for Hignani. And uh, he sort of went out there and they, they you know, they, we said, we're not, we're, not saying, we're not saying just this is what we want. We're saying show us what you earn from ICC, what you're given, and what you earn from various other avenues. And then let's agree on a percentage. And that's where all boards have gone. That You know, Australia are 27% and some are 30%, whatever. And then that's apportioned within their own players, player association structures. South Africa have got a really good one. Tony Irish ran a, a really good show insofar as their players association is concerned. So uh, it was just to uh, be better remunerated for being professional cricketers and better working conditions, I suppose. That was, uh, that was the key. And, uh, um, and, and we achieved that to a certain extent. There was some fallout. There's always going to be fallout insofar as uh, these uh, sort of bust-ups are concerned. But I'm glad that uh, we, we started that process and, uh, and hence we, we are where we are today, where, uh, where there was, now there's not, and they need to sort something out again from insofar as that is concerned because everyone sees it as a sort of us and them, you know, and uh, if you have uh, that sort of mindset, then nothing's going to work. But if you see it as uh, a complement to each other, is that uh, if uh, the two, uh, the union and the, the players' association, can work together and find common ground, it can be it can be a really uh, good thing. And uh, other 
uh, uh, sort of boards and uh, other cricketing nations have found that. They found uh, the synergy. You're always going to have your bust-ups. You're always going to have uh, you know, the players wanting their fair share and uh, the unions arguing that they need enough money to run the game as well. So you're going to try and find that balance and agree on that percentage. And uh, we've seen Australia had it uh, of late and uh, managed to resolve it. So it's always resolved, but you need those two platforms. And uh, we had one, uh, lost it, then it came back again, and now we don't have one. I think that it's crucial that uh, going forward that you have that. And, and as I said, I stress that you need it to complement each other. You need it to work towards a common goal. It can't be an us-and-them situation. Because if it is that, then it's totally detrimental to, to moving forward. But if it is done properly and constituted properly with the like-minded people, then, uh, then it works. So, uh, yeah, there was that. I mean, it, it, it was a distraction. We threatened not to play at Lords and all that sort of thing. So it got a bit out of hand. But... Uh, it needed to happen for, for them to come to the negotiating table and come to England and uh, take us seriously, which uh, we managed to achieve. In 2002, I felt you got a very raw deal, Al. So you, you were kind of, I suppose, not really being considered anymore. You, you weren't really a part of the future of Zimbabwe cricket. So his streak gets himself injured in a tuk-tuk accident in Sri Lanka after the Champions Trophy. So now suddenly Zimbabwe are stuck without a captain. Streak is going to be out for a couple of months. Horrific shoulder injury got bashed on the back of the head as well. And suddenly into the side comes reliable Alistair Douglas Ross Campbell, who now has to once again take over the captaincy uh, ahead of a series tour of Pakistan. So uh, well, Pakistan touring Zimbabwe for two tests and five one-day internationals. And Zimbabwe Cricket Union had actually made it quite clear that they wanted to focus on the younger players. But now Andy Flower, we all knew, was never going to captain the side again. Suddenly you, you're the captain. Did you feel used by what was then Zimbabwe Cricket Union because you put to one side and then suddenly when things go south, as we like to say, get, it, get Alistair to the side to sort it out? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, again, muddled. Um, I, it was at that stage, sort of in England, that you know, 2000, that uh, things started going awry insofar as player relations uh, with the board. There was uh, the, the black and white uh, stuff going on, more, uh, you know, quality sorts and whatnot. So that was the start of uh, the whole the whole saga that, as I said, has been well documented. And uh, I sort of got caught up in that and as I said I mean not sidelined because uh, you know I was only 29, 30 I mean I should be in my prime but because of uh, the battles I was fighting off the field I suppose um, that I probably shouldn't have been and shouldn't have been involved and maybe should have been concentrating on cricket but I felt that they needed to to be fought and I suppose that's in hindsight you can always you know you always do things a little bit differently I suppose um, but it was uh, it was turbulent times. It was terrible times. And I can't even yeah. I remember the the incident, and I and I can't really remember. You know, I suppose yeah. I can remember that. You know, taking over, and uh, it was just prior to the World Cup, I think. And uh, I remember against Pakistan, it was a disaster. Really, though, I mean, no one was performing. It was just it, the distractions off the field were were huge. And uh, and then uh, I remember getting a phone call. In those days, I didn't even have a cell phone. I, I got a phone call. I think it was on Boxing Day. I mean, how about the timing as well? Boxing yeah. Day, I get a phone call from uh, Ali Shah, who was the convener of selectors, and said, uh, uh, listen, uh, you know, we've decided you're not going to the World Cup. And fair enough if we had had a gun side, but I looked at some of the, the faces in there and who they'd picked, and I'm going, you really? Kidding me, man. Um, so uh, I didn't take it that well, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, I haven't really resolved it with Ali at this stage. I'm sure we'd uh, sit down and have a meal and be able to, to talk it over and whatnot. And, and I'm sure, you know, he's got his reasons and uh, he's not the only person. There was a panel and whatnot. I'm not sure precious he was, he was under. But, uh, you know, we haven't fully resolved it. And that was the, the slippery slope from then. And uh, I suppose the only bit of uh, mirth or, or, or to come out of that was... Uh, 
then I decided, right, so that's it. I'm going to go commentating. Um, I went to Vince Saga. I said, just pay me out the rest of my contract. Uh, you know, I'm done with playing cricket for Zimbabwe. And I went, uh, started commentating for that World Cup. That was the black armband yeah. protest and, and whatnot. Uh, so I did a few gigs. And then suddenly, I think Vermeulen, was it, that got injured? Yes. So I'm, in, uh, I'm commentating with Ian Bishop in Bloemfontein. And uh, we, we're chatting away. And he says, well, listen, you, you maybe need to uh, stop going to the buffet and put your tracksuit on and start running around the field. Because uh, you, there's, like he's injured, he's injured. He always does his homework, Ian Bishop. And uh, he said, they're going to they're gonna need you. I said, no, no, no the, the, where we're at, there's, there's nothing like that. And then out of the blue, phone call, I think it was because I was there, had to get my kit sent up and whatnot. So, um, I had two days to prepare or whatever, played against Kenya. I uh, hadn't played for a month or two months and uh, opened the batting. Um, but yeah, we lost that game. Yeah. Um, so that's just sort of icing on the cake, really, insofar as where we were going as a team. Um, and then, um, but it, what it did do was that uh, it's, uh, it's sort of, again, you know, Stewie Matsukaneri was also the guy in there. But you talk about, you know, as a cricketer, if you are going to finish, finish on your terms, um, at least, you know, if it's feasible, be able to do that. And um, I remember the next game taking my, uh, uh, getting my kit as you do go to the nets. And uh, I forget who it was, one of the guys said to me, don't worry about um, one of the managers or whatever, don't worry about taking a kit there, they've picked the team, you're not in it, Stewie's playing. And I thought, you know what, you know that uh, this is my last game, I've made it clear, it's Andy Flower's last game, it was against Sri Lanka, uh, I think it was in yes, uh, Port Elizabeth. Yeah. And uh, Henry's last game as well. I mean, the, the, the stuff going on, the changement off the field was just horrendous. But it was just the last game. And I just I remember going, I don't know if to one of the select or whatever, I said, guys, this is last game. I mean, Stewie can play. He's got a whole career in front of him. 17 years of old age or whatever. I'm going. I'm out of your hair. Andy Flower's going. He's out of your hair. Longer's going. Out of you. can start fresh after this. But, you know, we played together for the last uh, 10, 12 years. Just allow us to finish, if, if that's okay. And uh, no, so uh, he played. I was. I said I'll be. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Drinks, drinks guy. So I put my bib on and that. And uh, here's a photo. And he sent it to me afterwards. You know, um, of him walking off and me sort of walking on. You know, just with my glasses on, tear in the eyes, as it were. And um, and he sent that there. And he, I've got it in, in my pub. There. He said, "You're right. It's uh, off the field stuff that really counts." And 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 you know it was it was a horrible end. There were tears in the changing room. I mean, it was it was a disaster. It was a real disaster to to end that way. And Henry was saying that he was getting chased by uh, you know uh, nefarious government officials, and 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 Andy was leaving, and he was. I mean, it was just it was carnage. It was chaos, and it was uh, it was a horrible way to 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 end my my career, to be honest. And as I said, I went back there and um, uh, finished my contract, and then I. Uh, Try to play a few more club games, but when you're when the heart and soul are, are, are gone, it's 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 impossible. Even though you, I mean, you, you go there and you say I'm going to give something back, it's just it's not possible to to do that for me for me anyway. So the easiest way now is that that's done and time heals. It does, you know. And you you're able to look back and and yes, it wasn't a good time, but life moves on. You can't change it. And uh, I really through my uh, high performance program now and uh, and that bakers and futures, you can give you leave a legacy in a different way and give something back to to people that will hopefully, you know, be able to travel some of the road that I've travelled because it's uh, apart from those little things that I've highlighted, it's a heck of an opportunity to be able to play professional cricket for your country. But Al, you did give you did give back as you've alluded to in two thousand and nine when you once again came back and you you were the convener of selectors. Was that a job that you enjoyed? Did you did you enjoy being amongst the players and you know obviously you'd have to make some very tough calls at times. Some some you would perhaps maybe even had to do things that you didn't necessarily agree with the board and so on, which is the life of any convener of selector in any 
country. Uh, but was that something that you enjoyed? Um, I suppose I enjoyed it from the perspective of trying to 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 get the selection process done properly without any fear or favour or, or intervention from any third party. Um, that's always a thing that gets levelled at uh, you know anybody that uh, you know where's he getting influence from? Why so and so playing his uh, his uh, his pet and teacher's pet and that sort of thing? But so I enjoyed it from from that perspective, the challenge of uh, of trying to get the best people on the on the field. And yes, there's tough decisions to make. You know, I mean, you know, I, I look at a few of them. You know, dropping Ray Price and uh, we had a huge spat about it. But he was you know number two in the world, whatever at that stage. But you know, we needed to play another Seymour on a particular day and. Uh, the other spinner, I forget who it was. I forget the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the thing surrounding it. But, you know, having to drop him or, or you know, I remember on the one tour of the Caribbean, I said there's a, there's a fitness test, there's a standard, and uh, Brendan Taylor fails. So I said he must be dropped. And uh, I was overruled. That's the only time I got overruled that, uh, you know, the board came, no, 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 he has to play. You know, we need, he's, he's our best player. And I didn't dispute that he was our best player. But if you're not going to achieve a certain standard, then you know you've, you've got to, you've got to draw the line somewhere. So uh, I felt that uh, you know some of the players weren't weren't uh, willing to uh, to actually say that's an acceptable standard. For me, I always kept saying, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, you've got to pass the bar. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you've got to pass exams. If you want to be a accountant, you've got to pass exams. But if you're not prepared to reach a certain fitness level, aren't you disrespecting your profession? And times have moved on because people said to me, oh, but you didn't train. Oh, you know, they, they want to point that finger. No, I was, I was a poor trainer. But my days were the days where you could smoke in the changing room and, uh, you know, drink your beers in there after the game. <laughs> times have changed. And uh, professionalism and fitness and, and the, the world has moved on. And these guys play 24-7 and have to be in tip-top physical condition. So, uh, you know, I just, I just felt that it was you're trying to, to drag certain players along, um, mostly senior players, because there's always uh, enthusiasm and, uh, and gutso from the, the youngsters and, you know, they're they wanting to get on the park and, and off fit. But just from as you get older, you have to – it becomes tougher. You've got you to make sure that uh, you're training a little bit harder and working a little bit harder. I just felt that, uh, you know, some of the guys didn't uh, treat that – with the, the level of respect that it deserved, to be honest. Um, so, uh, yeah, but f- apart from that, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it was nice to get to know some of the players. When you've been out of it, I didn't know, you know, quite a lot of the players. And, uh, and, it was, uh, and we had a bit of cricket going on in those days, and I uh, was also part and parcel of, uh, you know, the revamp. So it wasn't just convener of selectors, you know, sort of uh, uh, director of cricket as well, so able to, um, to get, uh, you know, Grant Flower back involved and Streak back involved and, uh, you know, Alan Butcher was, uh, was the coach. And then on the franchise side, being able to get Jason Gillespie and Alan Donald uh, involved, Chris Silverwood. Who's now, I mean, all those guys, I mean, uh, I got involved and got them here to come and, uh, come and coach. And then you talk about the T20 cricket that went on and getting guys like Chris Gale to come here, all the English players and Dirk Nannis and Sean Tate and that. I mean, there were some fun times, really good times. And, uh, you know, it looked like that would be a, a turning point. And then, uh, you know, obviously... The money situation, uh, uh, you know, went for a ball of chalk and uh, became harder to pay players and whatnot. And, and, and then sort of that euphoria of that rebuilding phase sort of lost momentum. And, uh, and that's when you've uh, sort of, again, when, you, when you've got a job to do but you, you haven't the means to do that job, then uh, it, becomes, uh, you know, it becomes a tiring exercise. Yeah. What, if somebody were to say to you, but oh, quite possibly the huge amounts of, of salaries that you had to pay, the Chris Gales, the Brian Laras, Jason Gillespie, Alan Donald, would that maybe not have contributed towards once again crippling Zimbabwe cricket who were beginning to find their way back again? Yeah, what people don't know though, is that that T20 stuff was uh, totally paid for by sponsors. Right. There was, <laughs> there was no money taken from uh, ZC coffers. 
um, and it was totally uh, funded from uh, from uh, sponsors. And in those days, we had, uh, you know, your Econets that uh, were up there. Standbeck were our main sponsors, and uh, they did a terrific job and paid a lot of money to uh, to to have those naming rights. So, as I said, that was a standalone, and uh, no money uh, was taken from ZC. Quite possibly from the other perspective, um, that you know, you needed to pay your the other the other coaches that came out. So that was uh, the, the one thing. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, uh, there was a, a big staff compliment at ZC as well in those days. I mean, that's been refined now. You see where we were then and where we are now, the staff compliment that, uh, that is at ZC. So uh, I think there were a number of, of factors that, uh, that contributed to, to that. But the fact of the matter is that, uh, is that, you know, when the money was running out and the, the debts were ballooning, is that you, there's no money to actually put into to grassroots, put into the game, because uh, you're busy repaying repaying debt so uh, it became sort of untenable insofar as uh, moving the game forward and uh, we sort of uh, found ourselves at an impasse whereas uh, everything just came to a standstill and uh, coaches players alike were looking elsewhere and uh, trying to find a way to get through because uh, salaries just stopped being paid and then finally Al in 2015 just as we were gearing up for the World Cup in Australasia suddenly uh, there was a situation where there was this this, this terrible uh, not necessarily a spat or a fallout, but suddenly we have these accusations being hurled from Prosper Sayer to you about not including you in the side, and this now suddenly became a very big racial matter. Um, would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Because in various articles we've, we've heard Prosper's side of and why he feels that you were treating him unfairly and why he feels that you are being uh, racist. So what would your responses be to a lot of the things that he had to say? Um, that's a good question, Dina. Forty-page <laughs> accusation. Um, to be honest, it uh, yeah. I mean, each guy uh, at the end of the day answers only to himself when he looks in the in the mirror, um, or to his God. That's up to up to them. And uh, the bottom line is, it stemmed from the fact that uh, Prosper got called for uh, throwing, and that he shouldn't have been playing in the side. He was keeping back uh, by being there and playing. Um, he was uh, you know prejudicing another. Uh, player of playing, a better player, a better younger player of playing. And I went to him in, uh, in Australia in that 2015 World Cup. He shouldn't have been there, in my opinion. And uh, I think a few of those guys were treating it as sort of the benefit, you know, uh, into their careers, taking the lion's share of, uh, of the cash. Um, but that's fine. They would negotiated their contracts with uh, Zimbabwe cricket and whatnot. But the, the major thing was to go to him and say, listen, you, you've got to, we've got to find a different uh, path for you. And that means uh, going into coaching. And uh, we can help you with that and, and make sure that uh, you go down that road. But so far as playing is concerned, you've got to, uh, you've got to retire and uh, you've got to give somebody else a chance because you're not, you're not the bowler you used to be. And it's hard to come to terms with that. But uh, uh, if you're not going to come to terms with that, which you clearly didn't, <laughs> thought that I was you know, prejudicing his career and whatnot. But you talk about those are the tough things you have to make as a director of cricket. But that's, you want the best players playing for your side. Your, your very job depends on it. But it's, uh, if, if you've got uh, sort of uh, really good youngsters, you, you know, you had three or four leg spinners that were there, three or four off spinners, and you've got a guy that's been rehabilitated and bowling uh, little uh, medium paces, how on earth do you not become the laughing stock if you don't uh, jump in there and say, hold on, this, this can't continue like this? So, uh, and there was, a, there was a, p- a pathway that I wanted him to go down, which he never wanted to uh, sort of uh, go down or entertain, and, and thus, uh, you know, obviously that, uh, that accusation came about, and... Uh, 
as I said, it's up to him to justify that. I know who I am. I know what I what I did, what I said, and uh, and it, it's up to him to reconcile whether he thinks that what the accusi- accusations that he made have uh, have any substance. But again, nothing came of it. There was supposed to be a disciplinary hearing, but uh, I um, I'd uh, resigned prior to that, and uh, and obviously I see now that he's coach. He's gone down that road. He retired after that, and is now a coach. I think he's under nineteen yeah. under nineteen coach. So uh, he's down the path that he should be. I mean, one thing I did say to him is that you know regardless of uh, of our uh, fallout and uh, you know cheapest not everybody gets on in every business every union um, but you find a way to get the job done that's that's the object is that uh, you know the, the the intellectual property that he's required of a uh, 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it was of international cricket, it's huge. And uh, what he's been through. So, you know, the, the knowledge that he could impart on youngsters about, uh, you know, what to do, what not to do, particularly those making it from uh, poorer areas in the townships, that uh, what's required. And not only from a cricketing perspective, but from a life perspective, you know, to run their lives. They're suddenly going to be in a team earning some money. What do they do with that money? How do they spend it? How do they, they run their lives? So he had so much to give. And, I'm, and yeah, I hope he's doing that at the moment and giving that uh, knowledge because uh, he, has, he has all of that uh, that knowledge to impart but insofar as we're concerned we've never sort of spoken and recon- reconciled it there'll come a day I suppose that, that we'll sit down and uh, have a cup of tea and uh, if so if so desired to to uh, to get to the bottom of it and uh, and shake hands and uh, move on but life's too short eh? you know to be honest to uh, to worry about that uh, that sort of things as I said uh, when you look in the the mirror and uh, at yourself and uh, obviously answer to your God that's you know that's 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 how you have to reconcile things and know what you did and know what you didn't do and uh, as I said I'm I'm open to a cup of tea I'm, I'm always uh, open to to reconciling things and uh, moving forward with a new beginning. So a meal with Ali Shah just to uh, bring to closure the way that that you felt that you'd been treated as a player followed by a cup of tea with Prosper Ter just to clear the air would would be a, ni- a nice way to sort of as you get a bit older to know that that would have been uh, put behind you I guess. A few others as well. Don't worry. <laughs> but that, why wouldn't they be in a, in a career of 15 years? And it's not the first time and not the last time. But again, when you have differences, it's it's all it's you know. My best advice is to actually try and sort it out sooner rather than later yeah. because. Uh, you know, you look at what's happened to Dean Jones and, uh, you know, life's too short, you know, before you can say what you need to say and, uh, and you know, to reconcile what, what has happened. There's no need to, to bear grudges, hold grudges. What's done is done and uh, you want to try and move forward and live your best life. So uh, for me, it's, uh, it's, uh, these are things of the past and, as I said, I've sort of forgotten them and if they do come up and uh, they can be reconciled and talked about, I'm, I'm game for that. Alistair Campbell, it's been a real pleasure. Finally, we've actually been able to sit face-to-face and have this chat. It's been long overdue, but it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of a very hectic uh, schedule and wishing you nothing but the best. So with that, when things do start opening up, we'll once again hear your voice in the commentary box and, of course, also wishing you all the very best with the high-performance program and everything else that follows with all the young kids as well. Tina, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Dean at Stones podcast. It's been great being with you for the last bit, and uh, we'll be back again next time with another really good interview. But until then, stay safe and goodbye.